If a builder builds a home for someone and does not construct it properly, and the house which he built falls in and kills its owner, then that builder shall be put to death. If it kills the son of the owner of the house, the son of that builder shall also be put to death. From the Code of Hammurabi, King of Babylon. The name Babylon creates an impression in the mind. The first impression may be related to time, to age, to antiquity, and let's start there. This is, after all, a history podcast. Babylon is a name that belongs to our deep historical past. For a long time, in the minds of those who study history, after Egypt, Babylon was considered to be the most ancient of human societies and cities. The realm out of which Abraham walked with his household and his herds and into the chapters of the book of Genesis. This was before the discovery of Sumer and of Gubekli Tepe, before we knew just how deep the layers of human settlement were beneath the foundations of Jericho. Nevertheless, this is not a false impression. Babylon is old, an old place, an old idea. The second impression which the name may give is that of size. Babylon was an ancient metropolis. By modern standards, it was small. These days, in the 21st century, many metropolitan areas in the world are homes to tens of millions of people. But Babylon, growing in population size to possibly as many as 200,000 souls during the Iron Age, was immense for its time. It was one of the highest and most densely populated cities in the world. You might try to imagine what it would have been like for a rural villager to approach this city, this sprawling mass of brick buildings, some of them taller than any man-made edifice that you had ever seen, all encircled by high walls. It must have awed all who saw it. Complexity. Diversity. These are terms which may also follow when one thinks of the name of Babylon. As with any metropolis today, any great population center, Babylon was home to diverse peoples, with diverse trades, skills, appearances, backgrounds, and languages. In its heyday, the ancient city of Babylon was home to Amorites, Elamites, Sumerians, Kassites, Akkadians, Assyrians, and eventually even Greeks and other peoples from far-flung lands. They were people from Semitic, Hamitic, and Indo-European and other racial backgrounds, Such a large and complex population would have required people with every skill imaginable, carpenters and masons, scribes and priests, soldiers and kings, farmers and even sailors to man the ships that rode up and down the Euphrates River, which passed through the city, bringing exotic goods and people from the Persian Gulf, and more of the same from the sources of the river in northern Mesopotamia and the mountains of Anatolia. It was the New York of its time, the London, the Paris, and Rome of its time. As they would later say of Rome, all roads led to Babylon. Babylon is also a name that might bring to mind the concept of vice, of corruption. In the early Christian period of the Near East and elsewhere, Babylon became synonymous with sin, with evil, with the indulgences of lust and greed. Probably Christian writers did not have anything in particular against the actual city of Babylon. Instead, They used Babylon as a metaphor and as a symbol 
to describe the contemporary world and its corruption. In particular, it was used to describe Rome, which had become the Babylon of its time, equaling or surpassing in the Christian mind Babylon's size, population, diversity, and corruption. But this city, both famous and infamous, did not spring up full size from the banks of the Euphrates River. The story of Babylon is a long one, and it begins with a moderately sized village or town that appears in the records of the Akkadian Empire sometime around 2300 BC. Now, over time, Babylon will rise and fall and rise again in terms of its importance in Mesopotamia and in human history. It will be the location of the death of Alexander the Great in 323 BC, where he briefly ruled as master of the known world, the world known and important to the Greeks anyway. After that event, the city already being challenged by other Mesopotamian and Persian cities in terms of size and importance, Babylon would begin a long fade into obscurity. In the Middle Ages, Muslim scholars would describe it as nothing more than a small village. Today, it is only the site of ruins. American soldiers recently bivouacked atop these ruins after the conclusion of the invasion of Iraq in 2003. This is indeed a long and curious story, the story of Babylon. Since this is a podcast about our Western traditions, we will not explore this story in great detail. But Babylon, especially for the Greeks, who are the bedrock of all Western culture, Babylon is both a looming menace and a place of dreams and delights unimaginable. It is the home of the great king against whom they will form battle lines again and again until they break him in his order to renew the world in their own image. So, given this importance of Babylon, if only as a backdrop for the stage on which Greek hoplites and sailors will form armies and navies to sustain themselves against its power, let us look at least briefly at Babylon in its earliest incarnation as the leading city of the world, here in the early 2nd millennium BC, when the Akkadian Empire is centuries dead and, in the wake of its demise, half a dozen Mesopotamian cities or more vie for dominance in the land of the two rivers. Briefly, in historical terms, Babylon will become the capital of an empire here before its power ebbs and rival cities surge to hegemony over the old heartlands of Sumer and Akkad. Initially, Babylon was just another small city trying to sustain itself in a sea of rivals during the decline of the Akkadian Empire. The ancient cities of Mesopotamia had united and disunited more than once in the last thousand years. As various city-states rose to power and exerted influence and dominance over neighboring lands. Around 2150 BC, Akkad collapsed and a political dark age ensued. Slowly, the remains of the Mesopotamian empires of the 3rd millennium BC coalesced into distinct regions. To the northwest, up the river valleys of the Tigris and the Euphrates, was Assyria. To the south and east, the kingdom of Elam. And down in the center of the old Sumerian heartlands, where the Tigris and Euphrates ran close together and discharged into the Persian Gulf, the region that would become known as Babylonia. There were other societies surrounding these the Mitanni and the Hittites to the north in Anatolia, the Egyptians to the west, and so on. But now, after the third millennium BC had come to an end, 
it was Babylon's turn to take the lead among the rising civilizations of the Bronze Age. Following the decline of Akkad, the Babylonians and the Assyrians would vie for hegemony in Mesopotamia for more than a thousand years, until the Persian Empire swept away both these nations, and Egypt as well, in the 6th century BC. In this episode, I will not cover the entire story of Babylon's ascendancy over its Mesopotamian neighbors. Instead, I intend to look at just the first incarnation of the Babylonian Empire, the time period just before and after the kingship of Hammurabi, the famous lawmaker. To steer clear of any confusion, I should mention that Bible readers might think of a later Babylon than I am describing here. During the 8th and 7th centuries BC, what is now known as the Neo-Babylonian Empire would menace and eventually conquer the kingdom of Judah and take thousands of Jews into exile, but that is a much later Babylonian Empire. This episode addresses specifically the era beginning with the Amorite invasion sometime around 1850 BC and ending a few centuries later when the Hittites overthrew the Babylonian leadership. This is sometimes known as the Old Babylonian Period. This period begins when Amorites start arriving from the west, from the area of the Levant, a region which was discussed in previous episodes as the homeland of the Natufian culture many thousands of years before. Now, it is easy to describe the arrival of the Amorites as an invasion. This phrase is thrown around all too easily in historical discussions. For example, it is common to hear people speak of the barbarian invasions of Europe in the late Roman and early medieval eras, The word invasion probably brings to mind visions of burning farm fields, crumbling city walls, and women wailing over their dead. However, just as historical documents show that the the barbarian invasions of Europe were much more complex, often combinations of simple immigration and a certain amount of armed menace, so quite possibly was the so-called Amorite invasion. Certainly, Babylon does not seem to be any the worse for wear after the arrival of the Amorites, so the possibility that they came wreaking destruction seems unlikely. Rather, over time, perhaps a growing population of Amorites in the Levant, where, after all, we have already learned that successful agricultural techniques had been in place for thousands of years, perhaps this growing population simply expanded into Sumer during its decline, bringing a hardy, vigorous people in to replace a population depleted by frequent internecine wars. However they arrived, the Amorites soon took over Babylon, and for two or three centuries, Amorite kings led the city and its empire. At first, this empire was limited in size, encompassing only the very central region of Old Sumer. The realm grew slowly until, during the reign of Hammurabi, it expanded quickly, and Babylon soon controlled portions of Assyria in the north, and all the land around the mouths of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers as well. Little is known about any of these Amorite kings, even Hammurabi. He is remembered primarily for his legal code, which he issued with the following words in the introduction. Anu and Bel called me, Hammurabi, the exalted prince, the worshipper of the gods, to cause justice to prevail in the land, to destroy the wicked and the evil, to enlighten the land, and to further the welfare of the people. Note should be taken of the invocation of the gods. The laws were not intended to be understood as coming from man, nor even from the human rulers of men. The laws carried the force of divine approval and, if violated, the threat of divine punishment, in addition to any corporal or financial threats. And we should not allow ourselves to think that such divine reinforcement is a thing of the past, that our modern society long ago threw away the concept of heavenly approval of law and divine retribution for its disregard. 
Consider how even today, many people in the United States, on both sides of the political divide, attribute a sacred quality to the Constitution and call on it like a paper god when they need it most. No, the words of Hammurabi, though no longer spoken, echo in our legal chambers. In more than one court around the United States, at least, you may find plaques depicting Moses or quoting the commandments. We do right to study Hammurabi. His fingerprints, or those of the gods, if you will, are still to be found on our legal documents even today. Now, the existence of laws amongst our ancient urban ancestors were long assumed, but we had few examples of any until the laws of Hammurabi were uncovered in a Mesopotamian archaeology dig in 1902. Prior to this discovery, the laws of Moses, those 613 ordinances, precepts, and edicts found in the Old Testament, were the oldest intact examples of a legal code. The laws of Hammurabi, predating the divine delivery of the laws to Moses and his tribe by perhaps 500 years, bear a number of similarities to these biblical regulations, especially in the sense that his laws make sure to repay criminals with exactly what they have done to someone else, utilizing the now famous eye-for-an-eye concept from the Mosaic Law. Consider the example given above, in which the builder of a home must pay with his life if shoddy work causes any loss of life on those living under a roof that he built. There are enough resemblances between the laws that, inevitably, there were those who insisted that another biblical concept was stolen from a culture that preceded the Israelites. More likely, Hammurabi's legal code was not any more original than that of Moses, and both drew on a body of law that had been in development for more than a thousand years in the Mesopotamian River Basin. The episodes of this podcast, while each is nominally about a specific people or region of the world, also try to address, each in its turn, specific developments that affected the whole human race, no matter where or when they lived. The innovation of certain tools, the application of agriculture, the construction of megalithic architecture, and so on. I would like to set aside some time with this episode to consider the development of law in human society. Now, this is not a simple genesis to confront the beginning of law in ancient human cultures. We should try to remember that for most of human history, when we lived in Paleolithic bands of perhaps just a few dozen men, women, and children, there was likely no such thing as law. As observed with the few remaining cultures that still live today in the wilderness as hunter-gatherers, such people probably lived simply and according to the routines and practices that sustained their daily lives. Now, surely there were forbidden things among the hunter-gatherers and things discouraged, Murder of a fellow band member, especially when there so, were so few people in the band already and each depended on the abilities of the other for mutual survival, such killing would have been highly discouraged, though how murder might have been punished is uncertain. Some bands apparently practiced banishment as a penalty, but there seems to have been little permanence and little consistency in such customs. Banishment might have been temporary or permanent, and when temporary, more or less temporary with each case. Perhaps the most significant thing that we might notice if we were to wake up one day in a band of hunter-gatherers might be the lack of consistency in the application of any sort of punishment in the individualization of penalties. But then that very word punishment betrays our modern thinking and probably alienates us from our hunter-gatherer ancestors. What we can tell about such peoples in their lives is that there were very few violations of any kind because people lived very simply from day to day and adhered to common sense practices and tried and proved routines for survival. There was very little need for rules because you were simply surviving each day. 
doing what it took to survive and feeling neither good nor evil about how you accomplished that. Also, there was very little property among our Paleolithic ancestors, and without a doubt, law, as opposed to custom, is largely a result of property and the desire to protect it. Thus, the advent of agriculture probably was surely a great spur to the creation of law. Hunter-gatherers engaged in the occasional bit of gardening, but there, there were no plots of land that belonged to any particular individual. Instead, such gardens would have been community property. And, to begin with, there was very little gardening anyway. Clear from all anthropological studies of such hunter-gatherer bands is the recognition that all food gathered or hunted was to be equally shared among band members. The only things that people might have owned, things that they might have felt belonged to them, might have been their tools, weapons, and clothes, but even these would have been gladly loaned to other band members. While the Marxists of the past two centuries may have made too much of the idea of the state of primitive communism, there is also no doubt that such communism did exist in some form for a very long time. For a very long time, for hundreds of thousands of years perhaps, until agriculture became an integral part of the human world. While we can find people today living as hunter-gatherers in rare places around the world, we do not really have such access to people living in the transitional state, that mode of life which has begun to practice agriculture without totally giving up hunting and gathering. It seems likely that, initially, plots of land would have belonged to the band as a whole and might have been worked equally to sow and to reap the crops that such land produced. However, this new form of labor, this new approach to acquiring sustenance every day, created a new specialty in human life as well. You see, when our ancestors were hunter-gatherers, there was a clear division of labor. Men hunted and women gathered. Within each sex as well, there was only a certain amount of difference in capability. For instance, hunting was less often a one-man affair than a group activity, some men tracking, others perhaps driving the animals in a certain direction, others doing the killing. Nevertheless, each man played a role and earned his share of the kill. With agriculture now, there would have been some who were good at hunting and some who were good at farming. And there may have been conflict regarding the sharing of the food resulting from each activity. Recall the biblical passage about Cain and Abel, with which I began one of the episodes in the first unit on prehistory. The story of these two brothers, fundamentally, is a story of war between pastoralists and agriculturalists. Abel is the saintly pastoralist who raises animals, and Cain is the farmer whose sharing with the deity is deemed insufficient. It seems likely that at this juncture in human history, with a new specialty suddenly appearing in human activity, that there may have arisen conflict about the sharing of food and about property. However it happened, the ownership of land clearly became an issue in human society. Somehow, at some point, the land used to produce food was no longer land belonging to the band or to the clan, but to the individual family. And there would have been tools pertaining specifically to each farm and draft animals and so on. It would have become significant whether you farmed land with good soil and access to water, or if you had a more arid plot. Suddenly, things are beginning, are beginning to belong to your family or other subgroup, and you are perceiving yourself as having particular rights to its produce and to the tools used in caring for that land. What does this have to do with the genesis of law in human society? Perhaps, at the beginning, not much. Hunter-gatherer customs might have adapted to this new way of life, but there is no doubt that the sudden increase in property would have impacted the way that people dealt with one another, adding a new, complicating factor to all relationships, even close family bonds. And then, the population explosion that followed the advent of agri agriculture brought many more people into the average person's world, 
Among hunter-gatherers, there would have been perhaps 50 people in a band of mutually dependent individuals, all of them related by blood or marriage or both. As agriculture expanded, so did the population, and soon people were living in groups of hundreds. And now here we are in Babylon in the second millennium BC, and there are tens of thousands of people living in close quarters. Once upon a time, our ancestors and their ancestors lived in small bands of related members. Anyone from outside the band was a stranger, a threat. But as agriculture pushed the population numbers higher, the number of people in communities grew until people found themselves living with strangers. In other words, there were people in your village to whom you were not related, upon whom you did not depend for survival. Eventually, in proto-cities like early Jericho, there may have been people, fellow city dwellers, whose names you did not even know. This seems natural to those of us living in the modern world, in which we do not even know the names of our neighbors sometimes, but it was a strange new world for people transitioning from the Neolithic into the Bronze Age. Could the old customs and routines upon which Stone Age bands depended, could these customs be useful? Could they preserve order in a society made up of strangers? Apparently not. In the hunter-gatherer world, people did not need hard and fast rules for violations of trust, for aggression, for theft. With so few possessions and everyone focused on survival, there were few violations of any kind. Those times that someone did something perceived as wrong, shame was often enough to punish and to help that individual to modify behavior. Not so in a city of strangers, not so in a metropolis like Babylon in the second millennium BC, at the height of the Bronze Age. Over time, as humans grew away from their hunter-gatherer past and accustomed themselves to living in large settlements, villages and towns, and finally densely populated cities, they had to develop rules that everyone knew and whose punishments everyone understood ahead of time. And finally, simply understanding that certain activities were against the law was not enough. Anyone who has worked in criminal justice or studied crime understands that most crimes are not punished because they are never discovered. Think of all the people speeding, cruising through stop signs, shoplifting, cheating on their taxes, drinking underage, and so on. Just after the turn of the 21st century, at the dawn of the internet, millions of songs and movies were illegally downloaded online before controls were put in place to limit such traffic. Virtually none of the malefactors, and if you are old enough, you may be among them, as am I, your humble orator, virtually none of them were ever caught. A few high-profile cases hit the press, but most of these crimes, the vast majority, petty though they may seem, went unpunished. No, laws are not enough, even when written on stone tablets, to keep people from committing crime. Laws, then, are most effective when the people called to obey them believe that there is something divine behind those laws, and that both obeying them will bring divine favor and violating them will bring retribution from above. We may never know what the learning curve for this realization looked like, as people had to become accustomed to living in larger and larger populations and denser and denser settlements over the millennia between the beginning of agriculture and the rise of cities in Mesopotamia. It must have been messy. There must have been a certain amount of chaos pushing leaders to devise and apply the rule of law in more effective manners over the years. Leaders still struggle with this issue, convincing people to obey the laws when everyone knows that only a small number of lawbreakers will ever be caught and punished. But there is no doubt that Hammurabi and his predecessors had come upon a powerful tool of leadership when they claimed that the gods, rather than they, them, than they themselves, had conceived the laws and were eager to punish the doers of wrong. 
And just so, parents, prior to the present sophisticated age, often used to keep their children in line by convincing them that God or Santa Claus was always watching. We may no longer be moved by such motivators when it comes to our obedience to these laws. It remains to be seen if our freedom from celestial boogeymen will undermine the order of our society. I have mentioned the religious backing of Hammurabi's legal code already. It is probably a good time to discuss the Babylonian religion. Now, the practices of the Babylonian religion, as far as we can tell, remain similar to the practices of Sumerian religion from over a thousand years before. And the gods of the Babylonians were essentially the same as those of the Sumerians in the time of Gilgamesh, who was now as old to the ancient Babylonians as King Arthur is to us today. The names of the gods had changed somewhat, though, or they were at least pronounced differently, and their individual importance in the expansive pantheon was altered, but the identities are essentially the same. Even though the Amorites came in from the west and took over the city, there was no significant change to the religious beliefs of the people of the region after the change in leadership. As mentioned by Hammurabi, Anu was still considered a sort of ultimate patriarch or grandfather of the gods. He was still the sky father, the lord of heaven. And though the people were polytheists, worshipping a variety of gods, honor was paid to Anu by all believers. However, each city and region had its own favorite or patron, and most recognized a small handful of the gods as being the most important, such as Enlil, the storm god, or Ishtar, the goddess of love and fertility. But among that small handful of popular gods, there was one god who was increasingly seen as the chief of the gods after the time of Hammurabi. This was Marduk. That's M-A-R-D-U-K. Marduk is remembered in the Babylonian version of the creation myth as the one god responsible for the slaying of the chaos dragon, the one who brought order to the universe. There was a word in ancient Babylonian, Bel, B-E-L. It is basically the Babylonian version of the same Semitic term used by the Canaanites and described in an earlier episode, Baal, B-A-A-L. Both terms mean Lord, and are used to designate a man worthy of respect or a god. It was used as a prefix for many masculine gods, and so Marduk could have been known as Bel Marduk, Lord Marduk. However, in a process that will become familiar to us as we study history and the mythologies of various peoples, over time, Marduk became so renowned that the term Bel was reserved almost exclusively for him, when one spoke of the gods anyway. He is most likely the Bel mentioned by Hammurabi in the preface to his legal code when he speaks of Anu and Bel delivering the laws to him. The process of which I speak may or may not have its genesis in Mesopotamian religion. You see, as mentioned previously at the beginning, there were very basic and elemental gods, such as Anu, who ruled the heavens, and Enki, who was apparently a god of water. Later, as time passed, there were gods who had more abstract realms over which they ruled, such as the god of battle or the goddess of fertility. And then, as time passed, people began to see one of the gods as primary, to such an extent that the other gods in the pantheon were merely his servants, and later they simply became virtual emanations of the one god. 
When we study the beliefs of the Greeks over the next few years, we will see that Zeus went from being the chief god of the pantheon to eventually being known by Socrates simply as God, with the other gods being subject to him and essentially having no real will of their own, all of their actions being motivated and condoned by Zeus, God himself. The same appears to happen in Babylonian religion over a thousand years earlier, perhaps for the first time, perhaps not. If the ruins of Gobekli Tepe have taught us anything, it is that human society has roots much, roots much deeper than Sumer, and hidden in the darkness of prehistory, there may be many narratives that precede and underline the narratives that we already know. Anyway, as the second millennium passed in Mesopotamia, Marduk gained such significance for the Babylonians and others to the extent that, for all intents and purposes, he became almost the one and only god. No, the Babylonians were not secret monotheists. The Jews exiled in Babylon during the 6th century BC would be horrified by the multiplicity of idols and by the proliferation of deities worshipped by the locals. Nevertheless, there is definitely a focus on Marduk that resembles the later Greek focus on Zeus as the god whom the others must obey. And if the other gods must obey a particular god, then that particular god really becomes the only god, the other deities really functioning as nothing more than his limbs, instruments for doing his will. So it was with Marduk, known simply as the Lord to many Babylonians of later ages. We are midway through the second unit of episodes in this podcast series about the ancient world, and the developments in human life are beginning to become a cascade of innovations. Now, we are becoming used to technological breakthroughs in our modern life, all coming at a rapid pace, since the invention of computers in the 20th century and the creation of the internet a few decades ago. However, when we consider the pace of development at the end of the Neolithic and the beginning of the Bronze Age, we should remember that, we should remember that humans had lived in the Paleolithic for perhaps hundreds of thousands of years, with any technological developments in tool manufacture and use arriving very slowly and intermittently over the course of thousands or even tens of thousands of years at a time. At the beginning of the episode, I mentioned some ideas and concepts that might come to mind when we think of the name of Babylon. I described a number of popular ideas about this ancient empire that might come to mind. However, there's, there are some other things that should be known about Babylon. They may not immediately come to mind, but they are actually things which are fundamental not only to human history, but also to our Western traditions. Let me begin with canals. That may seem like a boring subject at first, but consider how valuable this innovation was for agricultural man. By channeling water away from rivers and other water sources into previously dry soils, the opportunities for food production expanded exponentially. However, a canal is not just a ditch though the first canals may have not been much more than that. There is a great deal of science involved in making a canal long enough to actually reach any useful distance from a river. The soil near a river does not need any more water, only those lands quite distant from it. So the digging and maintenance of a canal requires precision. Furthermore, water does not flow uphill. The canal must remain level or decline slightly over a distance. Any irregularity will result in a canal that stops flowing and the walls of the canal must be maintained, and so on. All this requires not only science, but also labor, organized on massive scales. Now, the Babylonians built and used canals to increase access to water for farmlands. They also used canals for commerce. They used canals to connect the two major rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. 
this way, instead of traveling down to the Persian Gulf and traveling back up the river if you wanted to reach a city on the other river system, you could remain inland while traveling by boat. And this was not a technology unique to Babylon. Egypt, though it could generally rely on the Nile to flood its land regularly and predictably, Egypt still found use for canals. And the ancient Egyptians built canals as needed to bring heavy stone blocks across the country and right to the location of wherever they were engaging in massive construction projects, such as the pyramids. And the pharaohs of the Middle Kingdom, around the time that Hammurabi was ruling in Babylon, the pharaohs built a canal from the Red Sea to the Nile, connecting the Mediterranean to the Red Sea and ultimately the Indian Ocean, almost 4,000 years before modern civilization built the Suez Canal. It can stun you to think how people without technology that we have today were able to accomplish so much, to do it so precisely and effectively. Yet the Babylonians at least had entered the Bronze Age in North America about a thousand years ago. The Hohokam tribe, with only Stone Age technology available, was able to build over 500 miles of networked canals that endured until the present day. Abandoned after the Hohokam disappeared, the canal system was rediscovered by Americans in the 19th century and put back to use after some simple renovation. And so today, the river systems of Europe and North America are all interconnected by canals, which sustain our food production and drive trade and commerce, as they did for the Babylonians and many other ancient ancestors of ours. Humans have been looking up at the stars and wondering about them for a very long time. It would be hard to say just when this curiosity began. It seems likely that Paleolithic men and women, even 100,000 years ago, were enough like us that they would have shared in the intrigue of the heavens, the night tapestry of lights, both fixed and moving, the stars immovable, the wandering planets, the waxing and waning moon lumbering among them, and finally the infrequent but flamboyant new arrivals, comets and meteors and supernovae bursting into the darkness and adorning it briefly with terrifying brilliance. Do apes look up at the stars and wonder? Did Homo erectus? Did the Neanderthals tell each other stories about the lights in the sky, about the absurd adventures of one deity or another? Did the Denisovans detect shapes in the patterns of the stars and name constellations? We do not know. At some point, though, our species, the Cro-Magnons, the Homo sapiens, the early modern humans, whatever you want to call them, they began to speculate about what was going on up there, about why some lights were brighter than others, why some moved and others did not, why some came and went. Prior to the discovery at Gobekli Tepe, it might have been possible to date such a fascination with the heavens at some point just prior to the eruption of civilization in Mesopotamia, since these were the first societies to leave written details about their interest in celestial bodies. Now we know, however, that even 10,000 years ago and more, men had already established a relationship with the night sky. So by the time that Babylon first rose to power in Mesopotamia, astronomy was much more than curiosity about the stars, more than a mythology that ascribed the names of gods to the brightest celestial bodies and told stories about them. No, astronomy was a science, and it was a science that the Babylonians gifted to us. So, like the gods of the Babylonians, their gifts to us come from both land and sky. They gave us organized mass agriculture supported by a network of canals down here on earth. And they gave us the heavens above, networked and organized by a surprisingly advanced concept of astronomy. 
I briefly introduced the Mesopotamian contribution to astronomy and numbers in episode 14. They had their own sets of constellations. They tracked the movements of the moon and the sun and the planets. They attributed the planets to the gods. Marduk, the dragon slayer, was represented by the planet Jupiter. More importantly, perhaps, for us today is the mathematical approach that the Babylonians applied to their study of the sky. According to Asger Abo, a famous 20th century historian of math and science, the Babylonians were the first ones to apply mathematics to their study of the sky. From them, we inherit the 363-degree circle, due to their numbering system relying on the numbers 12 and 60, rather than on base 10, like us. That is why today we do not divide circles into 100 degrees or some other factor of 100. They divided the sky with the 360-degree system, which modern astronomers still use, further dividing degrees into 60 minutes, which are used as measures of distance in the sky rather than measures of time. And the Babylonians generated a calendar from their observations of the sky. It was a lunisolar calendar, which used 12 lunar months as its basis. Now, since such a calendar does not adequately track the passage of time with regard to the movement of the sun in the sky, they added an extra or intercalary month every so, every so often in order to ensure that the seasons began at the right time every year. A similar system would remain in use in the West until Julius Caesar reformed the calendar into something much more precise, though still flawed, just before the time of Christ. All good things come to an end. All empire, empires decline and fall. Babylon's hegemony under Hammurabi quickly dissipated after his death, repeating the history of Sumer and Akkad, city after city surging to dominance for a brief historical moment, before falling back to let another city lead. Assyria and other surrounding kingdoms, such as that of the Hittites to the north in Anatolia or the Elamites to the east, would encroach upon Babylonia's borders or even conquer entire regions previously controlled by the imperial capital over the course of the next 150 or so years, until Babylon was again just another city in Mesopotamia, though much larger than it had been before the reign of Hammurabi. Not long after that, another people, the Kassites, would sweep into central Mesopotamia, seize Babylon, and bring fame and power once more to the city. But that is a story for a future podcast. In the meantime, the next episode will look to the north of Mesopotamia, to the Anatolian Peninsula, where the Hittites and other Indo-European-speaking tribes were becoming powerful nation-states of their own, while Babylonia ruled Mesopotamia and the pharaohs continued their long rule over the land of Egypt. Before ending this episode, I want to direct my listeners once again to my website at western-traditions.org. That is western-traditions.org. There you can listen to all the posted episodes, see their source lists, maps, and some good reads associated with the topics of each podcast. Furthermore, if you click on the episode list on the website, you can see the titles of each of the upcoming eight series that I will produce about the history of our Western traditions. The website also provides access to PayPal and to Patreon so that you can support the podcast financially if you so wish. Thank you to everyone who has donated so far to support the podcast. I hope that the new year brings improved quality to the podcast, as well as increased frequency of production. Until next time, thank you for listening to the Western Traditions Podcast.